So this morning, we continue our series in Philippians. But as we begin, I want us to consider something that's true in our message this morning, but it's something that's also true really any time we study our Bibles or any time we really talk about anything in the Christian faith, and it's this. So church, we need to understand that when we talk about truths from the Bible, truths from the Bible, meaning things we believe to be true of God, about Jesus, about the gospel, about how he relates to us and more, we need to understand that when we talk about those things, we're truly talking about truths. Now I know that sounds really simple, but here's what I mean, let's be honest. So often, with things in the Bible, or things we talk about in our Christian faith, so often we will confess them to be true, and we will genuinely probably even believe them to be true in our hearts, but if we're honest, they often don't have real experienced impact on our lives like other truths do. In other words, we may believe these things to be true, that's true, but being things that we often can't see or sense, they sometimes don't impact us daily like other truths do. Or maybe say it another way, we sometimes don't really believe them to be as true as other truths. For example, compare just two truths, compare two truths. Truth number one is that you are sitting in a pew right now. You are sitting in a pew. Now as I say that, it's almost a given that you believe it. And that's because you can sense that you're sitting in the pew. You can feel and you can see the pew. And so it comes naturally to not doubt that and to not only believe the truth that you're sitting in a pew, but to really be impacted by that truth, to have it affect your life. But now, compare that with another truth Namely, the truth that Jesus reigns right now as the sovereign Lord over the entire universe. And I mean, he really does. He rose around 30 AD, he's still the God-man, and he controls all things as God overall right now. Now, as I say that, I hope you're a Christian, and so you believe that to be just as true as truth number one about the pew. But even as I say that, don't we all recognize that because we can't sense this truth with our five senses, it's perhaps a little harder to believe it in exactly the same way? And not only that, don't we see that it's not only a little harder to believe it in our heads, but it's also harder to have this truth impact our lives right now or tomorrow or later on in this week. But the point is this, in reality, Both of those statements are true, meaning they relate to reality. Statement number one, you are sitting in a pew. Statement number two, Jesus reigns over the entire universe. Those are equally real. Not only that, but while it's unfortunate that it's often kind of just truths in category one, truths that appeal to our senses, it's unfortunate that those are often only the ones that kind of impact us daily. Here's something I want us to consider. It's actually truths from the second category, category two, truths about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, about him and his plan. Truths that are just as real but aren't as easily sensed. It's actually those truths 
that if we really believe them can have an even bigger impact on our lives. And this would apply to truths like you really being on God's side through Jesus by grace alone, not because of anything that you do. Imagine if you really believed that when you woke up in the morning, or when you went to work, or when you parented your kids. Or the same is true for things like believing that the Bible is actually God's very voice to us. Imagine how believing that in the same way as believing that you're sitting in a pew right now would impact how you live your day, daily life. Or finally, the same is true like just believing the fact that God really loves you. Right? Believing this not as just something we confess or believe in our heads, but knowing that right now he truly, really loves you. And so again, it's one thing to believe the more obvious daily things that we can sense and see, but the challenge for us as Christians is to really believe deep in our bones truths from the Bible. And crazy enough, again, it's those truths that can have even a bigger impact on us. But one last thing on this before we then get to our text. As we step back, this is also why, if you think about it, the Bible says things like we walk by faith and not by sight. Because that does not mean, that does not mean that our faith is any sort of leap of faith or anything. The Bible does not teach that we take a leap of faith. Our biblical faith is a reasonable faith. It's rooted in the historical death and resurrection of someone named Jesus Christ. So it's not that we leap and take a leap of faith, but instead, as we walk, as we live our Christian lives, the truths that really impact us, church, are not things that we can just see or sense with our five senses. We don't walk by sight like that. Instead, the truths that really impact us are truths that we believe, that we have faith in, even though we can't see them, but we know that they're equally as real. Or as Hebrews 11.1 1 says about faith, quote, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, not a leap, but a conviction of things not seen. As we've been saying, even though we can't see truths like this, it's this type of truth believing that has more impact on our lives. Which finally brings us to our text this morning here in Philippians 4. So I bring all that up. Because as I was studying this passage, I saw that there's a lot here in these verses between verses two and seven. And especially, as you probably can see for yourself, there's a lot there in that famous, rightly famous, verses four through seven. But then, something I'd, I'd never seen before, I saw that as, as we study these paragraphs this morning, that yes, there's a lot in them, but also what's interesting is that you'll see that in each of these paragraphs, there's also just essentially one major truth in each of them. One major truth. And then a lot of things that are impacted by that truth. In other words, in verses two through three, there's a lot in there, but it all is going to connect, I think, to one major truth. And then the same is surprisingly true for verses four through seven. There's a lot in there, but it all connects to one major truth. And that's then how we're gonna go through these two paragraphs this morning. We have two sections, one for each paragraph in our passage. But the goal in each section is gonna see what's in the paragraph, but above all, it's gonna, our, our goal is gonna see this one major truth in each paragraph and how it impacts us. 
And that's why we started off the message the way we did. Because not only are we trying to see that these truths are true, but we're also gonna see this morning that if we really believe these things, and I mean really believe them, then these truths can really impact how we live our lives. So with that said, let's begin our first paragraph here in verses two through three. And here again, we'll see a lot, but we'll see one major truth that impacts the whole paragraph and therefore can impact us. But we'll start with just by seeing the situation of what's going on here. So if you're gonna look down your Bibles, we're gonna start with just verse two. So it's Philippians four, verse two. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So as you can see in the context here, what's going on is clearly that there's these two women in the church of Philippi who are disagreeing. And Paul's entreating them to agree in the Lord. And uniquely here, these two women are mentioned by name, Yodia and Syntyche. And this is unique because Paul rarely mentions people in the church by name like this. And this then probably shows us that these women were probably well known and perhaps this disagreement was pretty well known for some reason. So that's verse two. There's a disagreement and Paul's asking these women to agree. And this, by the way, as you might recall, is a big theme of this book we've been going through of Philippians. Because if you remember, all the way back in chapter one, verse 27, we were called to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And then we saw that part of what that meant was we were supposed to live, quote, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter two, verse two, we are also called to be, quote, of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. And this is also why our series title, by the way, is Philippians Joy and Unity in the Gospel of Christ, because something this book teaches over and over is that when you believe the gospel, Christ brings us a special unity amongst one another. And so that's what's going on here in verse two. Paul's asking for what he already taught in this letter to now have specific influence in these women for there to be unity. But now let's read on and see Paul's further talk about how he hopes the unity will come about. And for this, we'll read verse three. So look down at your Bible, verse three. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so there's this disunity going on and Paul addresses these women specifically in verse two but now here in verse three, he brings someone else in, someone in the church to help them agree. And specifically as you can see in verse three, Paul asks this true companion to come alongside and help these women. And as a sort of side note, many scholars have loved to debate who this true companion is, and that's because Paul goes from writing to these two women in verse two to now talking about this third person in verse three. And as for who it is, there's some options. It could be Timothy or Epaphroditus, who if you remember are in the letter before and are going to the Philippians. Another option could be Luke, who traveled with Paul. He could be with the Philippians. Another option, which is why I bring this up, because the ESV has it in a footnote, if you're reading the ESV there, in verse three, is that this man's name could be Syzygus. Yes, Syzygus. And that's because Syzygus is literally just the Greek word for companion, or it could be somebody we don't even know about. So either way, we don't really know who the true companion is, but that's just kind of a side note because that's not that important. But what is important is that verse three does show us that Paul is bringing a third person now into the mix to help these women agree. 
And as for us then, this shows us as a church, as people in the church, we're not only supposed to be unified with one another, but in love, in love, we can sometimes come alongside one another and help one another towards unity because that's what this true companion was supposed to do. But then finally, I know this is a lot, in verse three we see how this paragraph starts to end. So Paul's wanting these women to be unified, and particularly at the end of verse three, we see he wants this because they labored side by side with him in the gospel. And here, Paul mentions another person by name, Clement, most likely showing that these women were probably well known because they traveled with other people who were known by name like Clement. And so that's the situation in verses two and three. It's a call in Philippians once again for unity. But this time it's very specific unity with three or four people being mentioned. And meaning this is a specific situation where two people weren't agreeing on something and that disagreement was a big enough deal to make this letter. And to be clear though, it wasn't a big deal because these two people were in danger of losing their salvation or anything. But instead, Paul's point is that you can see it, it simply wasn't fitting for the unity that they already shared in Christ. And that's why Paul entreats them, and that word entreats just literally means just to urge. It's why he urges them in verse two to agree in the Lord. Because at the end of the day, they were both Christians in Christ. And so the call for them was to realize this, to seek Jesus for unity and to strive to agree in the Lord. So that's the main thrust of verses two and three. But, as you might have noticed, that's certainly not all that's there in those verses. And here's where that one huge truth of this paragraph comes in. And it's really fascinating that it's here in our Bible. So with all that said, let's now read verses two and three again, but this time, notice again how Paul ends the paragraph. Verses two and three, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who've labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there it is, yes. Help these women to agree. Yes, this true companion is supposed to help. Yes, they've labored side by side with him. But how does the paragraph end? With a truth that's way bigger than any of that. Quote, whose names are in the book of life. So the question is, why does the Bible mention this? And why here? And this is a big question because this is the only place in all of Paul's letters that he mentions the book of life. It's the only place. And in the whole New Testament, the book of life is only explicitly mentioned two other times, both in the book of Revelation. And so talking about the book of life is not a common thing. And so the question is, what is going on here? Well, even though the book of life explicitly in that terminology only shows up three times specifically in the New Testament, it's something that's rooted in the Old Testament and it's even mentioned in Jesus' teachings. In the Old Testament, it shows up here and there a few times but the idea back then was that there was a book or, or a list or a record, if you will, of those who were really God's people. That's really all it was. 
And importantly, this shows up in a place like Daniel 12.1 where it's predicting the time of Christ and Daniel writes, but at that time your people shall be saved or delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And so that's the Old Testament, but as I said a second ago, it's then Jesus who picks this up and references it in his teaching. It only happened once, but you might remember the incident. It happened at a, at a time in Jesus' ministry when his disciples were all excited. And they were all excited because they had apparently such power and even the demons were listening to them and such. But then, in the midst of all that excitement, Jesus surprises them by responding with this, quote, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subjected to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And although Jesus there doesn't explicitly use the term book of life, the idea of being written in heaven seems to imply the same thing because Jesus' point is that what's of ultimate importance, which should cause his disciples, us as his disciples, such joy is that we are part of God's people with our names written in heaven. And so that's the book of life in the Bible. Which brings us back to our passage though. So again, the question is, why would Paul mention it here? Why does he end this paragraph where he's urging for unity with this quick reference just to the book of life? Well, as you can see for yourself, it seems he does so because he really believes that this truth, this truth that Euodia's name, that Syntyche's name, that the true companion name, that Clement's name, that his name are really written in the book of life. He believes that that truth, believing that truth will help them be unified. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because imagine how this would help with unity in the church. Because if two Christians are disagreeing about something, it means that they have a specific idea or situation that they don't agree on, and that makes sense, and sometimes that can be understandable. But do you know what would always at least help that situation? Having a much bigger, different perspective. Meaning being able to look above that small disagreement and to know that you two, who are not agreeing on this, whatever it is, are truly written in the book of life. That your names are written there together, and so you are both secure now and forever. Now, now that won't necessarily make the disagreement just magically go away, but it certainly will really help those who are disagreeing about something to have a proper perspective about it. It'll help us not make too big of a deal out of our Christian disagreements. And so that's the climactic point here in this paragraph. And this then is the first truth for us this morning to really believe here in our passage. It's the fact, the reality, that if you are a Christian here this morning, meaning if you have repented of your sins and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then your name is written in the book of life. Your name is written in a book which promises that you have life now and it promises that you have life secured forever. Life as it was always meant to be, but better forever. And the point is, if that's the case, if your name, personally, your name is really written in that book, then that will definitely change how you live your life. 
It'll make you live your life with more peace, not because you're awesome, but because you know that your future is secure. It'll make you feel more loved because written down, being written down in that book is proof that God knows you and loves you. It'll make you have a better perspective because you know that you're secure forever. And so you can say, like the Bible says sometimes, I will not fear, what can man do to me? And finally, it'll make you more thankful. More thankful for Jesus and the gospel because whenever you mess up and fail, which you will, you will know that you're still written in the book. All because you're written in the book of life not because of you, but because of God's grace and what Jesus did for you in the gospel. And so once again, this is a great example. That's why we started like this. This is a great example of a truth that we can assent to in our minds and it might have little or no impact in our lives or it's something that we can assent to in our minds and really know that it's true and therefore it can have a huge impact in our lives. And on this specifically, I remember a pastor I saw at a conference years ago talk about this specifically concerning the book of life. And his point was this, imagine that God allowed you to visit heaven. Just hypothetically, God allowed you right now to go visit heaven and of course he allowed you to see things like the throne and heaven and the heavenly realm and all that. But imagine that also he allowed you to go see the book of life. Not only to see the book, but to see your name personally written there. Meaning in reality, your name written by God, all which proved that without a doubt, you really know Jesus, that he really does love you and that you are secure now and forever. And the pastor's point was, when you returned here, how would seeing that book of life and your name in it impact how you live? How would knowing with crystal clarity that you're okay, that you are known and loved, that you are secure forever, impact how you live day in and day out? His point was that it certainly would impact us all a lot. All because we know with 100% certainty that this is all real. That it's true and that amazingly, by grace, my name is written in the book. And so the application again for all of us is to just really believe this and let it so impact our lives. Let the truth that God not only knows his people, but he's written down by name those who are his. And if you trust in Christ, you are his. Let that impact how you view him, how you view others, how you view your life. Because again, if you're a Christian, you are written in the book. But finally, one last point on all this before we move on to the next paragraph. Because this also means that if you are here this morning, we're so glad you're here and you haven't repented of your sins and you don't trust in Christ, this means that as of right now, you are not one of God's people as you stand. But if that's you, here's a possibly encouraging thing about how the Bible talks about God's people in the book of life. If that's you and you're here and you're realizing you don't know, you don't trust Jesus, the truth is you can come to him right now And if you do, you will prove that your name has always been written in the book. (laughs) Meaning we all have different times and ways that Jesus draws us to himself. Every Christian in this room has a different story of how and when Jesus drew us to him. But for you, 
It could be that this morning, even right now, could be the time that you genuinely come to Jesus. And so if that is you, I just encourage you, come and trust in Jesus this morning. Perhaps you are only living for things that you can see and taste and touch and smell, and, if, and it's not working. It's not satisfying. Well, we'll turn from that, turn from your sins and come to Jesus. And I want to say, if you want to talk about this more, if that's you, please come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to continue the conversation because the truth is Jesus died to forgive sinners. We're all sinners. And he rose and he's coming back soon and he's just as real as everything else in this world, even though we can't see him yet. And he loves you and he wants you to come and once again, if you do come to him this morning, your name will be in the book and it will change the way you live. So that's the first paragraph, and truth number one. But now that leads us to the second paragraph and truth number two this morning. But as you probably noticed by how long it took us to get through that first point, since there's even more here in this famous second paragraph, we don't have that, that much time left, instead of going through all of verses four through seven in depth here, we're just gonna cover the one major truth here and one major impact of it this morning, and then we're gonna save the rest of the paragraph for next week. So we're gonna just look at the one major truth and one major impact. With that said, we'll still read the whole paragraph for the sake of context this morning. So let's do that now, verses four through seven of Philippians four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this is a famous paragraph and, and for good reason. It has the famous command to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And it has that beautiful insight about anxiety and prayer, which we will talk more in depth about next week. But maybe what you've never noticed about this paragraph is that in essence, it's a bunch of commands. <laughs> yes, commands or things to do if you prefer. In fact, there's five commands in just those four verses there, making it mainly a list of commands. But see them for yourself. First, in verse four, we're commanded first, rejoice in the Lord. Then second, again in verse four, we're commanded again, again I will say rejoice. Then as for the third command, we're commanded in verse five to let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then fourth in verse six, we are commanded to not be anxious about anything. Then fifth and finally in verse six again, we're commanded to let your requests be made known to God. And then to finish the paragraph, all verse seven is as a result of obeying the command to pray. And so looking at it that way, most scholars point out that Paul is just rapid firing commands here. Rejoice, rejoice, show your reasonableness, don't be anxious, pray. As I said a minute ago, most of those we will cover next week. But for this week, I want us then to focus on what in this paragraph isn't a command and one result from it. And as for what isn't a command in this list, see it for yourself. It's at the end of verse five, and this is the second major life-changing truth for us this morning. The end of verse five, the Lord is at hand. And as you can see, this, this major truth is sandwiched between all those other commands. Rejoice, rejoice, or let your reasonableness be known. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious, pray. 
In other words, there's a lot we are commanded to do in these verses, but there's really in the whole paragraph only one thing that's kind of just a brute fact that has nothing to do with what we're supposed to do. And what is it? The Lord is at hand. Or some translations have it, the Lord is near, both of which are great translations. And in terms of what this means, there's, there's two major options, and I think both can be true and intended by Paul. The first is that the Lord is at hand in terms of him being near to you and I in proximity and space, if you will. And this would mean that the, the Lord is close by. And this could be what this means here because this is often, as you probably know, how the Bible talks about God's or Jesus' presence. He's at hand. He's near to us. He's close by. But then the other option about what the Lord is at hand means is that he's at hand in terms of him coming soon. He's at hand in time, if you will. He's close by in time, meaning Jesus is close to coming back soon. And this is an option of what this, what this could mean because, as you know, this is also how the Bible talks about Jesus' coming. He's at hand. He's close. He's near to coming. And so which is it? Is he near, meaning he's close by, or is he near, meaning he's close to coming soon? Well, I honestly prefer the option that includes both. And I say that because, because I really think Paul could be clever and cleverly intentional by how he's writing this. Because if we had to get specific, I think Paul specifically had in the front of his mind when he wrote it that the Lord is at hand, meaning Jesus is coming back soon. Because that's exactly what we talked about last week in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Jesus is coming back soon. But then, also along with this, I'm sure he would have realized that by just writing the Lord is at hand or the Lord is near, it also carries the idea that Jesus is with us now. In other words, the Lord is at hand means that Jesus is close to us personally now and he's close to coming back soon. Or to say it another way, Jesus is near to us physically and he's near to coming in history. Or finally, personally, Jesus is by your side right now and he's coming for you soon. And it's this then that if you're tracking connects to all the other commands here in our paragraph because it's the fact, the truth that the Lord is at hand, that he's close to us, that he's coming soon, that enable us, enables us then to rejoice in the Lord always, that enables us to let our reasonableness be shown to everyone, that enables us not to be anxious, that enables us to pray. And of course, points could be made about each one of those, but as I said, we're gonna pick up talking about them next week, specifically talking about prayer. But for this week, I wanna focus on just one of them. And that's that famous command there in verse four to quote, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. And remember, this is technically two commands. Paul repeats it for emphasis. But I want us to focus on how the truth that the Lord is at hand connects to the command to rejoice in the Lord always. And I think we can make this connection because see it for yourself. Paul commands us to rejoice in the Lord always in verse four. And then the next time he mentions the Lord is in verse five, where now the Lord is at hand. And so for him, I think they're related. Rejoice in the Lord always. The Lord is at hand. So again, the question is, how does the fact that the Lord is at hand help us rejoice in him always? Well, think of it this way. What will enable you 
to rejoice in the Lord always. Not just when things are going well, but especially when things are tough. Well, first, it's by believing and really knowing that Jesus is close to you. And I mean truly close to you. He's in you by his spirit. He's with you. He guides you. Because this means that even in those situations, he's there. And therefore, you can even rejoice in him. Now, now this does not make everything easy, nor does it mean that because he's there, he won't allow you to suffer. The Bible doesn't teach that. But this does mean that no matter what you're going through, knowing that Jesus is really there, close to you, can help you rejoice. It can help you not only just persevere through your suffering, but it can help you find this unique, deep-seated joy even in the midst of that suffering, all because you know that the Lord is at hand, meaning Jesus is really going through it with you. He's there, and he has a plan for whatever you're going through. But then second, along with this, knowing that the Lord is at hand also means that Jesus is truly coming back soon, also helps us rejoice no matter what we're going through. And why is that? Well, because now this means that no matter what you're going through, not only is Jesus close to you, but also you know that this isn't how it ends. Your suffering is not your final chapter. Nor are even the blessings that you're enjoying in this world your final chapter. Your story isn't over. Instead, the Lord is at hand means that the ending to all of our stories especially to our sufferings, will be the day when Jesus comes back. And as we talked about last week, when he transforms our bodies and subjects all things to himself and we live here with him and with one another, perfected forever. And in this way, then, you can see why this is a massive truth. The Lord is at hand. Jesus is close to us and Jesus is coming back. And just with the, like with the truth about the book of life, imagine if you really believed this. Imagine if you had this be a truth that you believed just as clearly as the fact that you're sitting in a pew right now. Imagine if you believe that Jesus is actually with you. Not just that we know he promised it to us. Yes, he did, like Matthew 28. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And yes, we know he's in us by his spirit. But again, how much does that really impact your day-to-day life? And similarly, imagine if every day you had the perspective where you believed that your future and that the future of this whole world is the fact that Jesus is really gonna come back and change this universe forever. Because again, yes, we confess that and know it to be true, but how much does that truth really impact your life? And so we should strive to really know these things to be true because it's then that it will lead us to have unique joy and it's then, as we'll talk about next week, that it will lead us to be able to pray. And so that's our text, church. We'll pick up again in verse five next week, but what we essentially saw here this morning is these two massive truths, how they can impact our lives. First is the truth that if you're a Christian now, your name is written in the book of life. Believe it. It means you are secure now and forevermore as one of God's people. And the second is the truth that Jesus is at hand. And this means Jesus is close to us and he's close to coming back soon. And so as we close, as I said when we started There's a lot in this passage in verses two through seven, but again, perhaps the biggest thing to take away for each of us is I encourage you to just really strive to believe these two truths. 
And I mean, maybe try this week, writing them down somewhere, whatever it takes, just try this week, really trying to just think about and repeat these two truths and see how they impact your life. Because as I've said before, so I'll keep saying it again, the Bible I don't think teaches that it's mainly applications that we need to do that change us deeply for God's glory. That's not how it works. Instead, it's deeply believing massive truths that changes us from the inside out. Massive truths, like my name is actually written in the book of life. Massive truths, like Jesus Christ is with me and he's coming back for me. And so church, I encourage you to join me in not only confessing these things to be true, but striving to really believe them deep in our bones. Let's, let's try it this week. Because one last time, if you trust in Christ, you're in the book of life. And if you trust in Christ, he's with you and he's coming back for you. And from believing these truths, let's see how Jesus changes our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And then we have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray.